All right, take your copy of God's Word and join me. We're going to back up in Mark where we've been, Mark chapter 2. Uh, I enjoyed our little excursion into Mark 16 last week. Did you all? Okay, one of you did. I'm glad at least two of us enjoyed that. <laughs> um, yeah, Peter's my favorite character. I can sure relate relate to Peter. All right, um, well, that would help. That's the other M. I'm in Matthew 2, but that's not exactly where I want to be. Let me back up to Mark 2. I still got Mark 16 marked in here, and that was my problem. All right. Let me catch us up to where we are. So as we start, as Mark opens his gospel, he presents Jesus as the great servant. And Mark is nothing if not fast. Um, this is John Mark that we hear about later in Scripture. Um, and he, his, his main contact for his info was Peter, who was a first uh, person eyewitness of all of these events. So Mark is quick. He, he doesn't give us any genealogy because we don't care about the genealogy of a servant. A servant's genealogy is a non-issue. He is presenting Jesus as the great servant king to Roman Christians, mostly Gentiles, who have very little to no understanding of Jewish history and tradition. There are Latin words actually in Mark's gospel because he's writing to a Latin society. So Mark has swiftly painted Jesus the great servant king in broad, bright strokes, baptized, because servants are obedient, driven into the wilderness for a time of testing, proclaiming the kingdom of the gospel, which is, or the kingdom gospel, which is repent, believe, and follow me. Swiftly he moves from there. We see Jesus teaching with authority. He then backs up his message with miracles. Don't ever get that the wrong way. The miracles serve only to back up the message and authenticate it. And then he, he recharges not by sleep, but by fellowship with his father in a lonely place. He then cleanses the leper, which is unheard of, demonstrating the servant's authority over disease. Now the leaders, the religious leaders, they are intrigued by this servant, if not a bit offended as everyone is now talking about the guest rabbi's sermon and not their own. And I can relate to that. Um, whenever I have a, a guest pastor come to fill the pulpit, it is very tempting to get someone who can't preach as well as I can. <laughs> Although at the same time, I want to come home and hear that was a phenomenal sermon, which I heard last time from Brother Eric. And he'll be back with us at the end of the month. I'll actually be here, but I'll have been traveling all night uh, from Kansas, so I don't think I'll be in any good shape to preach. So I'm, I've asked Brother Eric to come back and preach for us at the end of this month. You'll enjoy that. But the rabbis are a little bit hurt that everybody's talking about, wow, look at the authority this guy teaches with. But they're not quite sure what to make of this new rabbi yet. Jesus then forgives the sins of a paralyzed man showing his authority over sin, Satan, and sickness. But this crossed the line. The leaders now accuse him of blasphemy, speaking against God. Who can forgive sins, they thought, but who? God. And Jesus says, correct. <laughs> and heals this man, proving the veracity of his first declaration, which was the 
forgiveness of this man's sins. But now he has some adversaries that he didn't have before he did that. So Mark is building a picture for us that shows not only the growing popularity of the servant king, but also the strong probability of religious persecution, or at least pushback. Jesus then calls the last disciple, the last one, in a very unlikely choice, a tax collector. And then he follows that tax collector home for a feast. Now these same leaders now try to divide the disciples from the master by accusing him of having friends in low places, eating and drinking with sinners, thieves, whores, and traitors. These are not the people that respectable rabbis would ever associate with. And here he is, not just, not just associating, eating and drinking with them. On the heels of this, the same group of religious adversaries make the mistake, ooh, the big mistake, of trying to compare their righteousness with that of Jesus. You ever said or done something that turned right around quickly and bit you? That's what these guys are going to experience. And spoiler alert, this is not going to turn out well for them. They basically ask him, hey, why don't, why don't, you guys, why don't your guys fast? You're leading them into sin, not faithfulness. So Jesus uses one tradition, cultural norm, followed by two parables to drive home his point of the new to old paradigm. The new to old paradigm. One custom, two object lessons. Interestingly enough, Mark doesn't give you a whole lot of what Jesus says. He, he gives you more of the actions of what Jesus does. He only references four parables in his entire account. Two of them are right here, and they're really short. The parable of the cloth, the parable of new wine and old wineskins. So, this is the setup for our brief text today. And you'll find it in Matthew's Gospel chapter 2, and let's look real quickly in verse 18. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were doing what church? If you got your own Bible, they were fasting, like right then. Then they, this is interesting, then they, this looks like John's disciples are piling on here a little bit, and there's a reason for that. But then they came, to, came and said to him, to Jesus, why do the disciples of John... And of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, don't miss this. Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? And if you got in your Bible, what's the punctuation at the end of that sentence? Jesus answers, he does this a lot. But Jesus answers a question with a question. Right? And by the way, we should grab a hold of that. I had a wise man. This was in a parenting context, but it's true in a lot of other contexts as well. He said this. He said, statements harden and build walls. He said, questions convict and build bridges. Yeah. Say that again. Statements harden and they build walls. 
Questions convict and build bridges. And don't we do that with our kids? We tend to make statements. You are so naughty. Or my father's favorite question, what's the matter with you? One day I came up with a great answer. I said, I suppose it was my father. That did not go well for me. <laughs> I will tell you. Uh, yeah, questions convict. And I watch my wife do that with our children. More than once I've watched a kid do something stupid, and she'll turn to them and say, was there a better way you could have done that? Was there, was there a more honorable way you could have said that? Or I'm thinking, what's wrong with you? <laughs> right? There's good questions produce conviction, thought, and actually build bridges of connection and relationship. So notice this. Jesus answers their question with a question. He said, can the best friends of the bridegroom, you know, fast while the... At the wedding reception? Is that appropriate? Right? And then he makes these statements. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. That was a rhetorical question, by the way. But, verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away with, from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, two parables. Two one-verse parables. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth to an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and a tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. All right, so let's quickly look this morning at one tradition and two parables that Jesus uses to drive home his point of the new to old paradigm. And there's so much packed in here that we need to hear, understand, and appropriate and be very careful of in our culture today. So let's pray. Father, we come to you just uh, humble and asking for your help. Um, asking for you to be glorified in what's said here. Um, but also that you would, you would guard my words, that I would not say anything out of bounds, out of line, or untrue. This is a sensitive topic this morning from your word. So, so protect and use this. Give us ears to hear what your spirit says to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, point number one, feasting, not fasting. New to old, point number one, feasting, not fasting. Um. Verses 18 to 20. And I put this, oh, I think it is up there, good. Um, I, I did do a couple of subpoints points on here just to make this plain. I, I want to establish something, first of all. Number one, or letter A, Jesus both taught and practiced fasting. So Jesus was not anti-fasting. I want you to understand that. As a matter of fact, we open, Mark opens his very fast gospel, and he includes in there an account where as soon as he's baptized, he's driven, that's the word, driven, into the wilderness for how long, church? 40 days. 40 days. And Mark doesn't necessarily bear it out, but we see it in Matthew and Luke. And then in those 40 days, he neither ate anything or had any food, just water. It's a 40-day, what is it called? Fast. Now, the Lord has called me to two of those in my lifetime. Two 40-day fasts without food. Yes, it's possible. I firmly believe he designed a human body to do just that. 
Um, and Jesus did it. He was, but, but I had learned something from that for, those two 40-day fasts. It should be called a slow, not a fast, because it goes by really slow, especially around mealtime. But 40-day fasts, that's a long time to go without, right? Jesus was not opposed to fasting. He did it. Um, he also taught about it in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't say, if you fast, he says what? When, when you fast. And he told you how to do it. Oh, man, I've run into people. <laughs> i got to be careful here, but when we had the church do a 40-day fast one time. Not everybody fasting. Um, although Jay did. Jay joined me, and we, he made it all the way through. God blessed him. Did some miracles in his life during that fast. But anyway, I remember some people saying, oh, we're going to do the, I'm going a whole 40 days. They literally didn't make it to day two. And to look at, they came in and looked like they were going to die. Some of you will remember that. It was, if it wasn't so sad, it would have been funny. It, it, it's, it's 24 hours. You're okay. You're, you're not going to die. Uh, but that's what these religious leaders would do. They would make their face drawn and put, they would literally take ashes and put them under their eyes to make it look like they had these dark bags. Look how spiritual we are. We're fasting. And Jesus is like, Come, get over yourself. Not only are these people not impressed, God's not impressed either. Y'all got me off my topic here. Jesus both taught and practiced fasting. 40 days, Sermon on the Mount. Now here's the thing, and we can assume, I'm going to put this in there as an assumption. I can safely assume that Jesus fasted at least once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when all Israel was commanded by God to fast from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. I'm sure Jesus did that because he obeyed the law in order to fulfill it and bring it to its conclusion. So he preached on it and did it. Number two, God commanded one annual fast for 12 hours. I just told you that on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the holiest feast day in Israel. Now this is interesting. This is just cultural. The Pharisees fasted two days a week on Mondays and Thursday. Did God say, thou shalt fast on Mondays and Thursdays? No, they made that up. That's just something that they did to show how serious they were. And that's what they're referring to here. Letter B, this explains, um, Jesus explains by asking his own question in 19. So here's what probably happened. Here's what probably happened. Um, it's safe to assume that that feast that he went to at Matthew's house was on either Monday or Thursday. And Monday and Thursday were what kind of days, church? Fasting days. And Jesus wasn't fasting. He was what? Feasting on a fasting day. And this was rabbinical tradition. This was not the law of God. And that was the problem. And that's what Jesus knew to old is going to be about. He's going to say, look, guys, you, you've, you've turned something beautiful into something ugly. And what I'm bringing, the, the new covenant, is going to blow that up and destroy it. These are not going to go together. You're going to have to make a choice. So Jesus explains by asking his own question in verse 19, can the, can the friends of the bridegroom fast at the feast of the wedding? And that's a, that's a rhetorical question, but in case they got it wrong, Jesus answers it. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot what? Fast. And who is Jesus comparing himself to? The bridegroom. 
right? And the church is the bride. So Jesus uses a vivid picture to tell the Pharisees why his disciples did not fast. After a Jewish wedding, listen to this, the couple didn't go away for a honeymoon. Y'all remember, did you? We went to Williamsburg, Virginia. Because I read a thing in the bookstore that said, Virginia is for lovers. I said, that's a good place to go on your honeymoon. So we went to Williamsburg, Virginia for our honeymoon. They didn't do that in the first century. After the Jewish wedding, the couple stayed at home and the reception and feasting lasted a week. That's a long reception. For a week or so, they had an open house that was kept, and there was continual feasting and rejoicing. And think about this. In a hard-wrought life, the wedding week was the happiest week in a young couple's existence. It Literally, you look forward to, you didn't get vacations in the first century except that one. It was the happiest week in a young couple's life, and they knew it was never going to get any better than that week. And they literally stayed home. Um, and they feasted and rejoiced in that week together. To that week of happiness were invited the closest friends of the bride and the bridegroom. And they were called by name, they were called by the name children of the bride chamber. Jesus likened his little company to men who were children of the bride chamber, chosen guests at a wedding feast. Today we have the best man, and what do they call the... Um, the maid of honor if she's married, or matron of, no. Maid of honor if she's not married, matron of honor if she is married. And then all your stand-up people, I think we had eight on each side in our wedding. Um, that's, that's where we got that tradition from, from first century Jews. These were the stand-up guys, and they were there to support. They would go fill the, fill the glass, the wine glasses for the couple. They stood at the, at the entrance to the chamber, when the couple would go in and consummate their marriage, they stood there as guards, rejoicing. It was a tradition. I'm glad all traditions did not carry over. I remember my idiot guys tried to follow us to where we spent the night. Thankfully that, well, anyway. Be careful who you choose. There's a lesson in that. Um, there was actually a rabbinic, again, this was tradition, rabbinic rule. Ruling, which said this, listen to this, and this is what Jesus is referring to, so he kind of snagged them in their own tradition. Quote, here was their, their ruling. It said, quote, all in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved from all religious observances which would lessen their joy, end quote, i.e. fasting. You see it? Jesus is brilliant. He's using their own tradition against them. The wedding guests were actually exempt from all fasting. So he's, he's given a pretty solid answer, right? Using their own tradition, which is not Bible, which is not God's word. It's not, it's not law. It's tradition. But he even knows their tradition enough to say to use it against them. Hey, we're, this is a wedding feast, man. I'm the bridegroom. I'm here. My guys are, fast, are feasting with me. Now notice what he says in verse 20. However, but that's a conjunction of contrast. The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So Jesus assures them, let her see, that we will fast. Jesus assures them that we will fast. Now Jesus moves to the reality of one day. Now, 
when is he talking about? Some have said, well, he was probably talking about when, when he was taken uh, prisoner and was on the cross and in the tomb for three days. His disciples were hiding out. This was their time of fasting. I think it was that, but I also think it was after his ascension. Though the Holy, we're left with the Holy Spirit, there, it is still a time of fasting, regular fasting, um, as we look forward to the return of Christ. Speaking of fasting, um, it is something that is not in style, but it's coming back in style, but not in the church. Y'all ever heard of intermittent fasting? On a, yeah, right? I see a lot of heads, which, by the way, is a really good idea. On a side, first century living incorporated intermittent fasting by necessity. They, they didn't do it for health. They just, that's the only way they could live. They did intermittent fasting all the time. That's where the obesity rates were almost zero. Uh, but fasting is becoming in vogue again, but not for the right reasons. Our type of fast is for sorrow. Our type of fast is, is to seek a deeper repentance over sin. Our type of fast is to seek God for answers and movements of his Holy Spirit. And my dear, dear friend, Charlie Colgan, who's with the Lord, he's the first one that, that introduced me to the idea of a 40-day fast. He would, he would do two 40-day fasts a year. Now, don't be too impressed because Charlie would be the first one to tell you he realized you could, you could put a lot of stuff in a juicer. He could juice a ham if you had to. You know? <laughs> so there's ways to cheat on a 40-day fast. But Charlie was the one that convinced me, man, you got to do it. He said, man, when you're preaching while you're fasting, it's like walking on water. Now, he might have oversold that a little bit. But I did. I'll never forget that first 40-day fast, and God used Charlie to convince me to do it. And he wasn't terribly off. Preaching when you're fasting is kind of like walking on. It's amazing. I'll never forget about the, the fourth week in, my wife said to me, we're driving home from church. She goes, she said, what are you doing different in your preaching? I said, nothing. She goes, no, yes, you are. Something's different. What are you, what's different about your process of what you, what, what you got up there with you? I said, well, I was reluctant to admit this to her. I said, I'm actually not using notes. And I don't know why, but it was, I had so much time in the Word, and the Word found so much, so much uh, traction in my heart, I, didn't, I just didn't need notes. I just got up and preached. She goes, well, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. But I found that when the fast was over, I had a hard time, harder time preaching without notes. But when I'm fasting, I don't need notes. <laughs> now, I mostly use notes for quotes. But uh, when I'm fasting, I, I just, it was, it's a different thing. So I got this text from Charlie's widow this morning, Wendy, early this morning, about 6 o'clock. And I responded away, right away. But I, I, I was going to just tell you the gist of it, but I just want to read it to you. Here's what, here's what Wendy texted myself and a group of, of Charlie's friends. We're all going up to the funeral on Tuesday. Here's what she said. I've known for many days that I was going to ask the saints to join me in a one-day fast from food this Monday. And then break that fast Tuesday as we worship King Jesus and celebrate the life Jesus lived through Charlie. Will you invite the saints you love to fast with me tomorrow? Asking the Lord to save the lost friends and family, not only of Charlie Colgan, but all of their lost friends and family. May the excruciating death of Charlie Colgan lead to life in Christ for the lost friends and family that he has. May there be great revival and great awakening because he joined Jesus in suffering for the sake of the gospel. So I'm asking you, 
You are the saints that I love. I'm asking you to join me tomorrow in fasting and praying that God's beautiful gospel would go forth so plain and so clear at this service at 4 o'clock on Tuesday in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I'm asking you to join me. That's what fasting, hey, Jesus said, oh, they're going to fast all right when a bridegroom's taken away. And when he calls away his choice of saints, we will fast. And I ask, will you join me? So now, on the heels of that, notice it's all in red in your Bible. If you've got a red letter Bible, Jesus doesn't even give them a chance to ask another question. He goes into the first parable, verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk garment on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old garment, and the tear is made worse. So as Jesus assures them that his disciples will fast, he moves from a Jewish culture of a wedding feast to twin object lessons or parables that drive home their problem and Jesus' purpose. Drives home their problem and Jesus' purpose. Over and over again, he finds the simple things, in the simple things, pathways and pointers to God. No one was ever such an expert and getting from the here and now to the there and then. Because for Jesus, earth was crammed with heaven. He lived so close to God that everything spoke to him of God. And he could take illustrations and just bring them right home. So the first illustration is, point number two is, new patch to old cloth, verse 21. Verse 21. And this is obvious, right? You take an unshrunk piece of cloth and you sew it on as a patch to an old piece of cloth. As soon as you wash that thing, what's going to happen to the unshrunk piece of cloth? It's going to shrink. And the hole that you started with is that you hope to patch up only now gets, you got a bigger problem than when you started. Right? You can see that, right? You can't put this new thing on an old thing. It won't work. Jesus is referring to the new Testament, the new covenant, the new agreement before, between God and man. You can't stick it in an Old Testament context. It won't work. And specifically, you can't sew that thing onto a bunch of religious tradition that the Pharisees had created. All these extra laws that insulated and protected the main law, which we find in the Ten Commandments. Truth be told, of first century Judaism, in seeking to become holy, it became holy. And by holy, I mean full of holes. In seeking to become perfect, it became putrid. And the more they tried to be holy, the more holes showed up in their actual life. Most of those were internal. Unshrunk cloth on old cloth would make the hole worse, which is exactly what happened to Jewish, the Jewish faith by the time of the first century. And trying to be good, they became bad. By the way, that's the same for you and I. They had so many traditions and man-made prohibitions built around God's law that they quickly lost the heart and intent of God's actual law. Aren't we good at checking off boxes. There's a comfort in that. John MacArthur said this. I think it's perfect, so I want to share it with you. The Jewish leaders had added their own rabbinic stipulations and traditions to God's law 
to the degree that Judaism had more to do with keeping extra biblical perceptions than with honoring divine requirements. It had become all about the extra biblical stuff and not the biblical stuff. And so seeking to please God in their self-righteousness, they lost the righteousness part and they were only left with self. They didn't see it because they were trying so hard. But here's the reality. Write this down. Jesus came to produce the new, not patch up the old. How many of you know that's true this morning? Jesus came to produce the new, not patch up the old. He came to usher in the new, not unite the new with the old. By the way, that goes for us too, not just Old and New Testament. It goes for us too, not just the first century Jewish leaders. Listen to me, listen to me. Jesus won't accommodate the old you. Jesus didn't come to reform who you were. He came to bring who you were to a bloody violent end in the cross with him and resurrect a brand new you. Jesus has no, no intention of, of producing a, a, a reformed, a better version of you. That is not what he's here for. He's here to bring an end to who you were so there can be a beginning to who you are. Amen? That's called repentance and following Jesus, two steps in that kingdom gospel. Galatians 2.20, just jot it down. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I went to the cross with Jesus, the old me, the old man, and a new man was resurrected in faith with him. Anybody glad about that today? You don't put new patches on old cloth. And you don't put the gospel and sew it on to your tradition or your best efforts. Doesn't work. And then the third one is new wine and old wineskins. Verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. And, and, and the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put into new wineskins. Now, if you'll click that screen, Sam. Uh, I said, I just had to show you a picture. I was doing a little research, and this kind of grossed me out a little bit. I ain't going to lie to you. I mean, that's a wineskin, a full wineskin over there. I mean, brothers and sisters, that's a sheep with no head. I know exactly what that is. That, does that look a little nasty? How many of you are glad for bottles and the bottling companies, right? Thank you, Lord, for glass, right? Woo, that's rough right there. But literally, that's, that's what you do. It, and, that, and it worked great. And, Unless you were the sheep, I guess. It wouldn't work great for you then. But, but this thing worked. They took the hair off the sheep, turned that thing inside, and they were, they were, it was clean. Um, and they would fill that full of, of what they call new wine that had some yeast in it and some sugar in it. And it would literally finish fermenting in there. Um, and then as it did, because that was a... Now you see, that's a new wine skin on the other side, that, that other thing. And so you could tell that one's flexible and it's going to stretch. It starts off that size and it ends up that size because of the expansion during fermentation. And I know for some of you saints who are holier than Jesus himself, you have a problem with that fermentation word, but I mean, there it is. That's what it was for. <laughs> it, it literally fermented and made alcohol. Um, and, and, and the reason for that is it killed so many of the bacteria that was in the water that also 
was in that pouch. So that bacteria is worse for you than the little bit of alcohol that was created. But you put, you put, you put new wine in new wine. See, if you try to put new wine in that old crusty wine skin that blew up, that thing got hard after a while. Um, and when the wine quit fermenting and quit making gases, uh, it was fine. It, it would hold it because there's nothing new happening. If you put new wine in there, it would explode. The, the skin would, would, would crack and you'd lose everything. And wine was valuable. By the way, write this down in your outline. Always in Scripture, always in Scripture, wine is equated with joy. The purpose of wine, Solomon the wise said, was to gladden the heart of man. Gladden your heart. John Constable said in his expository notes, Judaism had become rigid and inflexible because of the traditions that had encrusted it. Like old goatskins, that contained wine. Jesus' kingdom could not operate within those constraints. It would be a new and more flexible vehicle for bringing joy, wine, to humanity. So Jesus' point was made clear by these examples, and here it is, and don't miss it. You can't fit his new life into old forms. You can't fit his, his new way into your old ways. The old here is not the law specifically, the Ten Commandments, but the self-righteous works-based system that they, the religious leaders, had created by which we are to make ourselves right with God by gutting out good works. Be careful of what you're trusting in. They had taught the people, you just gut out these good works and God accepts that and you'll be all right. That's the old. The kingdom gospel will destroy your efforts to make yourself right with God. It will expose your sin. It will expedite your co-crucifixion with Christ. The kingdom gospel will examine your motives. And it will externalize grace as it expects the joy that only King Jesus brings. The Old Testament versus the New Testament. Don't try to hold on to both. The old way, the old agreement, has been fulfilled in its purpose. It was waiting for someone to come and pull it off. And when that someone came, it had served its purpose. And I found this to be a good way to understand it. It's the acorn to the oak analogy. The old, the old ways, is the Old Testament, the law is designed to show us that we got a sin problem and we are powerless to fix it. It's the acorn. And what did Jesus say in the parable about the wheat, the seed? Because you know the acorn is nothing but a big old seed. What did he say about the wheat? Unless, this, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and what, church? dies, it abideth alone. God always intended the acorn of the law in its fulfillment to give birth to the oak of God's grace in the gospel. So here's a practical application. I want, I want to give you a pastoral warning here. Be very, very careful 
about anyone or any organization or any, I'm going to put this in quotes, church that tells you you've got to go back and fulfill and do all of the Old Testament feasts and follow those laws. It's called the Hebrew Roots Movement. It is not helpful. It is deceptive. That acorn has blossomed into a glorious oak. We don't go back to the nut. You don't put the new and sow it onto the old. The old can't handle it. You don't put the new and pour it into old wineskins. The old wineskins can't contain it. And you don't take the new glorious grace of a new agreement and fulfilled law and pour yourself back into a, a mosaic law system because that system can't contain or hold the grace of Almighty God exemplified through Jesus Christ. Does that make sense today? Be careful. And if you love your friends that are in those movements, you, you need to find a, a, a loving way to urge them to rethink what they're doing. They are denying ultimately Christ and his resurrection and death. Be careful. Be very careful. So here's the question and conclusion today. What about you? Are you trying to sow the new grace of God into your old life? Are you trying to have your Savior and your sin too? Won't work. Just makes more holes. You trying to pour the gospel of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of King Jesus into the old wineskins of your best efforts won't work. Your life's going to come apart at the seams, just like those old goatskins. And that, too, is God's grace. He will bring your best efforts to failure that you may finally turn and receive his best effort on your behalf. Amen? In conclusion, I want to say this. Jesus traded fasting for feasting, sackcloth and ashes for a robe of righteousness, a spirit of heaviness for a garment of praise. He traded mourning for joy and law for grace. So here's my question. Have you? Have you? Would you stand with me? We must take a moment and respond to this truth today. And I'm going to give you a chance to do that right now. There's an old-fashioned altar here. There are those that can pray with you or you can pray alone. You don't have to come forward, but I think it's a good practice. What are you sowing on to the old you, your old life? Have you responded? Have you traded fasting for feasting? Have you actually embraced the gospel of the kingdom? If you have, do it all the way. It's all grace. It's not about you. Maybe you need to respond to that. Maybe, maybe you need to repent. Maybe you need to get serious about living right, being right, as a response to God's kindness to you in Christ. 
not to produce grace, but because you've received it. May we repent together and bring him glory. Father, speak to us. Maybe some of us don't need to sing this. Maybe we just need to pray. Give us wisdom to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.